like these women who are in these asylums and they really can't get out, there's only so much about a person that you can actually lock up. They still have their personality, their nature, their intelligence, and their passion. And so that's kind of what she learns, is the freedom that you have within bounds. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Joanna Davidson Politano, author of the novel The Lost Melody. I think a lot of getting traditionally published is having the exact right novel at the exact right time in front of the exact right person who's in the exact right mood. <laughs> A lot of times there's there's just a lot of power in listening because people say unexpected things and those unexpected things often have lots of nuggets of gold in them. Joanna Davidson Politano is an author and freelancer who spends much of her time spinning tales that capture the colorful, exquisite details in ordinary lives. Her manuscript for Lady Jane Disappears was a finalist for several contests, including the 2016 Genesis Award from ACFW, and won the OCW Cascade Award and the Maggie Award for Excellence. She is always on the hunt for random acts of kindness, people willing to share their deepest secrets with a stranger, and hidden stashes of sweets. She lives with her husband and two children in a house in the woods near Lake Michigan. Today, I'll be talking to her about her newest novel, The Lost Melody. Well, Joanna, I want to start with your genre. I believe you describe it as an English-based historical mystery with some romance. Can you describe it a little bit more in your own words? Sure. Uh, a lot of people call it gothic fiction, something along the lines of Daphne du Maurier. Uh, who wrote Rebecca. There's kind of a very slightly, um, I don't know, I guess a suspenseful, shadowy, kind of abandoned old houses type of feel. Uh, Well, that always draws some interest. Um, What drew you to that genre? I love to be surprised when I'm reading stories, when I'm watching them on television. Um, I just, I love to be surprised. And a lot of the Gothic fiction was able to do that. Um, Daphne du Maurier was my introduction to that, and she completely shocked me with Rebecca and all of her other books, and I just, I love that experience. And so when I'm writing a book, I want that same experience. I want to be surprised. Is that something you find that maybe as you're creating the story in your head that you yourself are surprised with what you come up with? Oh, absolutely. I always know the ending of my books before I start writing, but I'm always wrong. So I always end up completely chopping off and rewriting a bunch of stuff. And it's so much more fun that way. It feels a lot less like work and more like discovery. Sure. Well, could you tell us a little bit about your latest novel, The Lost Melody? What, what is it about? Sure. It's a combination of 
kind of a love letter to all music in general, especially piano music. And uh, it touches on mental health. And it combines the two and looks at the very beginning of music therapy. And so it was a lot of fun to do the research for all of those parts. The, um, the music part of it was fun. I've played piano since I was a kid. So I wrote about a, a classical pianist who performs uh, back in the Victorian era. And so she kind of just hears music all the time, everywhere. And all the sounds of the world kind of synthesize into song for her a little bit. And she, she goes to work in this asylum where people uh, are dealing with all different sorts of things from postpartum depression to um, just age-related dementia and, I don't know, anxiety and so, so many different things. So there's a lot of different things combined. Um, but the beauty of it all is the music and the way music is used as a therapeutic technique. So I'm curious, you said you, you play the piano, but what did you actually learn about music therapy? Did you know much about it before writing this novel? I knew very little. Um, I think most people assume, and myself included, that it's more of like a bubble bath for the senses. It soothes you. Um, but there's a lot of science behind it. And the way music has access to parts of your brain that other things do not. Like if I were to just speak to someone who is losing their memory, it wouldn't make as much sense. But if they heard a song from a certain era, suddenly it's like a fishing pole reeling in all these memories that are associated with that song. So people listening to big band and swing will remember a lot of things that happened during the era of that music very, you know, spontaneously. Whereas if I were just asking them questions, none of their answers might make sense. And there's also, when there's people who are on the autism spectrum, they have music that they want to engage these people. And so they kind of honor their natural rhythm if they're rocking back and forth and things like that. And it somehow reaches them in a way that no other human contact or voice can really do. That's really fascinating. And I can definitely relate to hearing a song and, and instantly being transported back to a, a moment in time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What about asylums? What, what did you learn about well, the nature of asylums at the time your novel is set and, and about how mental health was treated? Oh, there was so much fear surrounding it. Um, the Victorian era, they didn't have the cruelty that they had, you know, 100 years before. Um, they weren't chaining people and things like that. And they hadn't gotten to electric shock therapy, fortunately. So in that middle period, they were completely trying to revolutionize the asylum system. They wanted every county to have their own asylum. And they actually had a board to govern the asylums to make sure that people were being treated well. Uh, the basic theory of how to treat people then was called the moral system. And it was, you know, hard work and clean air and good food can hear can cure a lot of things. And so that was kind of the focus. They would be self-sustaining little communities. Um, people would run the butcher shops and the dressmaking and things like that. And um, it was like a self-sustaining community. They really didn't understand mental health. They wanted to treat these people with compassion and, and also kind of keep them away from the rest of society because they were almost like a loose cannon. Um, but they did try to treat them well overall, I discovered, which is different than even how they were doing it in America at the time. Um, a lot of the more barbaric methods were still going on then. 
But like I said, they really didn't understand mental health. So people with postpartum depression, it became a life sentence. You know, they would send them to these asylums and they didn't really get well there. So it was just maintenance. Um, but they figured they were keeping people safe from these loose cannons. Um, and, you know, a lot of times the families had to really invest a whole lot to take care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. And so this was a way to kind of alleviate that. A lot of people from the poor houses and the workhouses also ended up in asylums, especially if they didn't have good hygiene or couldn't care for themselves. So we've talked a little bit about the the circumstances within which your novel takes place. What about the, the, the history? Was Were there any specific people that you did research on or specific events in this novel? Oh, yes. There was definitely, uh, like I was talking about the moral system, um, that was a guy named Took invented that. And so... Uh, I did research a lot of his theories, but there's a specific character in the book who was basically the beginning of music therapy. His name was Frederick Kill Halford, and I changed it to just Frederick Halford because I didn't like the kill part, but he is in the book. And he started a guild when he was towards his, the end of his life. And so I have my characters kind of pick up the pieces of that guild. Um, but he had this theory that that music could... Um, alleviate pain in hospitals in people who were very sick and had chronic pain. Either um, they needed excitement, so they needed lively songs, or they needed calming songs. And that was the very beginning. Um, and he kind of, further he went, he discovered that there were unique rhythms that would mean something to different people, different rhythms and different songs. And uh, so a lot of his research I just poured through it, and um, he ended up in the book for a little bit. He makes a few appearances, and a lot of his theories definitely are shaping the book. So do you find that um, you, you're able to teach readers uh, with your historical fiction about these people, events, circumstances? You know, I honestly don't set out to teach. I set out to, you know, I find a nugget of something that's very interesting to me, like um, the asylums and like the beginnings of music therapy. And I just like, I dig through everything I can find and I rabbit trail everywhere and I get super excited about the research. And then I kind of just like throw it all on the page and say, you know, here, look at all this really cool stuff. And I just kind of share it with, with readers just, you know, as much as I can. So I'm curious, it does sound like it is enjoyable for you to, to do that research and to pull everything together uh, is there is there a certain part that's a little more arduous than another as far as developing the story and putting it all together into a, you know a plausible and enjoyable narrative? Honestly, the first draft is is really difficult. <laughs> it feels like trying to carry something heavy uphill um, because often when I'm writing, I let the story unfold pretty organically rather than plotting it out. That just works better for me, and uh, so. It makes it really difficult. I have no idea where the story's going. I don't really know the characters until I interact with them a little on the page and watch them do their thing. Um, so the first draft is always very, very mentally labor-intensive. And the other drafts are a lot more fun. I get to play with the pieces. All the puzzle pieces are on the table. I just have to make them fit. So do you find that there's a point where you can step back and the characters start to take hold of the story? Yes, there's always a certain scene and somebody will say something and I'll just somehow get their voice in my head. And I'm like, okay, that's who you are. I understand you now. 
And then I can start unpacking, how did you get that way? What's your background? What are you going to do about this situation in the future? How are you going to handle this character? And uh, yeah, they, they kind of blossom as the story gets written. I wish I could do it the other way and know my characters before I start, Mm -hmm. Um, but I know very little and I just kind of let them unfold as they go. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about the, the last line of your synopsis. It it says that um, you look at the nature of women's independence and artistic expression during, during the Victorian era and now. Um, So what can you tell us about the nature of women's independence and artistic expression at that time? And, how it's evolved since then? Well, obviously women were valued much less back then and their art was valued much less. People kind of assumed that they were slightly less intelligent, slightly less talented than men. Um, And they really did not have a leg to stand on if they wanted to be independent. Um, So my character is an only child and her father uh, dies at the very beginning of the book. So she has independence. Um, And it's kind of a new thing in that era where women can inherit. And uh, so she's not married. So she gets her father's shop and all his his money and everything. And she's able to finally make her own decisions. And it really bothers her that there are other women in positions that, you know, their husbands or their fathers or their brothers are kind of their caretakers. They can't decide um, what kind of job or if they work or where they're going to live, or, you know, if, if someone's leaving an abusive situation, she can't even take her children with her. They belong to her husband. And so she, she feels very strongly about wanting something different for women. And so she sets out, and as soon as her father is gone, she feels a bit of a weight lift, and she decides to, to go get this job and to try to um, – she inherits a guardianship of someone that she doesn't know existed. So she goes, sets out and tries to find this person and try to help her as well. Her artistic expression, of course, is she's a concert pianist. Uh, she has a manager who's a man, and he kind of makes all the decisions and calls the shots. And she finally gets into a position where she's separated from him. She's in this asylum, and she can kind of do what she wants. But a lot of what she learns is also there's freedom within whatever circumstances. Even if there are people over you, if you're trapped in in an unwanted situation, um, like these women who are in these asylums and they really can't get out, there's only so much about a person that you can actually lock up. They still have their personality, their nature, their intelligence, and their passion. And so that's kind of what she learns is the freedom that you have within bounds. I like that line. There's only so much of a person that you can actually lock up. Um, yes. So, so yeah, what do you think about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that that kind of stems from Paul in the Bible when he was imprisoned. And, you know, there's only, like I said, I think I said this in the book, there's only so much about Paul they could lock up because he was still talking to people about, about Christ and he was, Um, doing his thing, even though he was under house arrest. And that's kind of where she sees the people in the asylum. They're under house arrest, but there's still a lot they can do. Well, let's talk more about Paul and Christianity. Um, You know, you do write from a a Christian background, and and I presume there are Christian elements in your novels. Are those elements specific to the characters and the things they do and say, or is there more of a subtle message, Christian message message in the um, books? 
Well, I don't even know if I'd call it a Christian message. Um, everybody writes from the truth that that is in their own heart. So, you know, what I find that is true is going to leak onto the page. And it's a lot more subtle, probably. Um, you know, like I've talked about, there's freedom within within the constraints that the world puts around us. So the Christian message would then be, you know, there's if God is in you, there's a whole lot of freedom that you have, even if people and sin are hemming you into a situation that's horrible. You know, there are missionaries in prison um, just for spreading the gospel and things like that. So I, I, I mean, my characters do kind of wrestle a little bit with their spiritual lives, um, which are true to the times back then. It was a very spiritual period in history. Um, but a lot of it is a more subtle theme, like this one being freedom and the beauty of expression of music and the value of people, especially was big in this one. I, I think, again, you, that's very well said. And, and uh, I like how you said, you know, it's people speak from their from their heart, whatever they wherever they're coming from. You're quite a prolific author. Um, where do you, you get your ideas from? Oh, when I'm trying to sleep, usually <laughs> they kind of just pile all over the place. And when I research things, historical events and things like that, I just sort of get little nuggets of ideas like, oh, that's a really interesting. Let me unpack that little piece of history. Um, I wrote a ballet book. Um, ballet was totally different in the Victorian era than it is now. And, you know, I wanted to write about what is it like to dance when you're wearing heavy skirts and people don't really value um, showing legs or anything like that. Like, How do you even do ballet? And, you know, the women that, that danced ballet, they were not considered uh, famous stars or anything like that. They were kind of the lower class echelon of society. And um, so, you know, I get a little nugget of something from history and I'm just like, well, what was that like? What, you know, what, how did that take place and how, how would that spool out in a story? And can you talk about um, how you learned to be a writer? Was it just from reading a lot? Um, do you have a, a, a background, an educational background in writing? How did, how did that develop? Um, I do have a degree in journalism, which helped me not at all with fiction. <laughs> it's like a totally different animal. Um, I don't know. I've been reading books since I was very small. And um, both my parents were very liter literature focused, I would say. Um, my dad, from the time I was very little, I used to climb into his lap and he would make up all these wild stories about leprechauns and horses that talked and things like that. And so I kind of got the the story bug early on. And when you get all these stories circulating through your head, what do you do with them but put them on the page? So I think when I was five, I started writing stories and in grade school, I was so quiet and it bugged me that all these kids would get picked on by bullies. So I wrote the, the picked on kids into superheroes and, you know, I kind of gave the bullies a taste of their own medicine in these stories. And it just, it was a way to kind of process things that were going on and just spill all these fun stories onto the page. Do you still have some of those stories? Uh, I might possibly, I can't remember, honestly. Um, they, I wrote them secretly and hid them in my desk, but then a few of them circulated and nobody knew who wrote them. So I don't know if they got back to me. Uh -huh. Um, that was kind of <laughs> created a fun little stir, but I think they were lost. <laughs> 
So why England? Why do you base your stories in England? Um, I, I kind of enjoy the way the world was in England. I'm not really sure why it's captivated me so much. Um, my ancestral background is Scottish, Irish, and English. And when I visit there, I somehow feel at home. And there's, there's an ancient, a, more, a little bit more ancient quality to those countries than we have in the States. So you go there and you find these ruined towers that, you know, are from centuries ago and, and they have all these stories. And I just, I feel like there are many more years of stories to be told there. And they just fascinate me. I don't know why. And have you had a chance to travel much to the region? And if so, um, you know, how much does that help to to create authenticity in your, your writing? Oh, it made all the difference, honestly. I have been fortunate enough, enough to travel. I spent some time in Ireland traveling around and in England. And then for my honeymoon, my husband was gracious enough to take us to Scotland. <laughs> and so we spent several weeks touring every part of that country and we would take um, the guided tours of the houses, but the part that helped the most with my writing, honestly, was striking out on our own and talking to the locals who lived across the street from these big estates. And they'd be like, well, let me tell you what really happened to this family. And these stories that were handed down from generations that had lived in that same house, those were just amazing. And those were the, where the real authentic stories come in. Um, it, a lot of a lot of the novels that are out now, they're wonderful novels and they talk about, you know, the higher class society and, and things like that. Um, I loved getting the nitty gritty perspective from people who had watched these families grow up and go through history. And uh, we would go to pubs and talk to all the locals and get, I guess, more the the authentic stories. And it was so much fun. And I just got all these ideas for family dynamics and mysteries and even ghost stories and things like that. It was so much fun to talk to them. Wow. So do you have a, a notebook somewhere with just a list of ideas that are, are waiting for you? Oh, yes. I filled an entire notebook on that trip. I just wrote down every little thing that struck me. And uh, we even wandered in the cemeteries and wrote down interesting things that we noticed and stuff like that. And I also have an entire log on my camera uh, like an entire SD card full of all these really unique pictures from ruins and people we met. And uh, I often still refer back. This was 10 years ago. I often refer back to those for inspiration and just to kind of remember what it was like to bring some authenticity. Well, I love the the intricacies that go into writing a historical fiction novel from getting to know the characters, to doing the research on paper, to traveling and finding these stories. So I think that's that's really wonderful to, to hear about the process that you have to go through. Yeah, honestly, every part of it is really fun in its own way. So I think um, there's a lot of different ways to publish nowadays. Um, can you talk about the way that, that your novels are published? And also um, maybe some advice if there are um, novice writers out there who who want to reach the stage that you're at of having a contract and being a traditionally published author? Um, honestly, uh, I think a lot of getting traditionally published is having the exact right novel at the exact right time in front of the exact right person who's in the exact right mood. <laughs> so it's, I don't know, it's, 
you've got to have a story that just takes on a life of its own, but then it's also got to hit the right spot. So I tried for a lot of years to write these stories of my heart and nobody was publishing stories that were set overseas. And I was even told um, when I went and pitched these stories in person that nobody would ever buy them because they were set in Italy or set in England and the market was just not there. Downton Abbey came along and suddenly my books were like, everybody wanted them. And it was the same books that I'd always been pitching. So a lot of it has to do with the market and things like that. So I would definitely recommend writing um, what's what really intrigues you, what you're excited about, and just wait for the market to swing around. Don't worry so much about trying to fit into a specific genre or trend or anything like that. What you're excited about, readers will be excited about. Um, as far as traditional versus uh, self-publishing, the reason I went the traditional route is because I just don't have the skill set to market my own books, to design a cover, um, to do the editing, and I don't really have the contacts to you know know who's really good in the field. So I hand my books over to a publisher who I really trust, and they take care of all those things. So you do have a lot more freedom in self-publishing. You make all the decisions, but it's also a lot more work up front and sometimes more expense, too. Um, so being traditionally published has been a huge blessing because I have small kids and I just don't have the bandwidth to field all the, all the other things that my publisher does. Um, I, will, I would recommend for sure going to a writing conference and pitching in person. Um, that tends to prioritize your submission um, and work really hard on figuring out what publisher wants what type of book so you're not pitching the wrong thing. <laughs> That's probably one of the more helpful things. And just read a whole lot. Find out what excites you. Um, you know, if twists and turns excites you, if suspense, uh, nail-biting suspense really excites you, if you know, a beautiful unfolding romance, just figure out what elements um, and maybe piece together several elements from several genres. Um, but writing should first of all be fun and then it will be fun for the people who read it. Well, thank you for, for sharing all that. You made a lot of really great points, um, especially like what you said about write, you know, write what, what you feel you want to write and wait for the market to turn because I think that's that's exactly what happens with current events. Eventually, it will be right for the market, whatever it is that, that your story is. Yes. And the thing about following trends is that, you know, if if there's one thing that's super popular, by the time you get an idea and get a, a whole book written and edited and cleaned up and ready to submit, the trends have moved on. Yeah. So what is it like to to work on a contract or to have a deadline? Does that inhibit you in some way or does it help you um, push forward? What's that like for you? It definitely helps me push forward. Um, I only have one deadline a year in terms of actually producing a book. Um, so I do have a lot of grace period in there. Um, I guess the, the thing that I try to do is prioritize things in my life and somehow the time kind of makes itself happen. Um, so I always say real people before imaginary people. And um, so I, I sit down and write when I can. If I didn't have a deadline, though, I would probably be prioritizing a lot of things before those imaginary people. 
So a deadline does definitely help me. There are days that I would choose not to write just because I don't feel like it. And um, that's the difference a deadline makes for me is I still do it when I don't feel like it. Well, I do want to ask about on your website, your about page, you, you, you talk about um, inviting people to tell you their stories. What is that all about? Why do you invite people to, to, to contact you, to interact with you in that way? I love, I just love hearing people's stories, especially um, family dynamics, people dynamics, um, things like that. And, you know, that invitation was very open-ended and I really wasn't sure if anybody would respond to it. Um, But I've been really, really surprised, pleasantly surprised. Uh, Lots of people have um, just said I need somebody to talk to and they've kind of unloaded some things. Some people have given me these amazing stories, like this is what my grandma did years ago when she was a kid, and this is just this incredible story that she had, and it just like, it fires up my creativity, and um, I'm a bit of an empath too, so when people come to me and share these things, it just, it makes my heart kind of swell for them, and I feel all the things that they feel to a degree, and um, I just, I love connecting with people. I love hearing about their lives. I'm generally a pretty quiet person because I I really love to hear what other people have been through and where they've been. And I don't know. A lot of times there's there's just a lot of power in listening because people say unexpected things and those unexpected things often have lots of nuggets of gold in them. I think that's great. And and especially to not know how, how, what will happen when you, when you put that invitation out there, when you're kind of vulnerable, but I'm glad to hear that it, that it's gone really well. Oh yes. It's been a lot of fun. I've connected with a whole lot of people all over the world. So you've got, uh, the lost melody is out now and available. What are you working on next? Um, I have two other books. I'm moving slightly ahead in the historical eras, um, to the early Edwardian period. Uh, I'm working on a book about a silent movie theater actress, and I'm working on another book after that about uh, basically a woman who inherits a house full of crazy gadgety inventions. So we'll have to see what comes of those two books. They're still in the early stages. Well, fun. It sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. Certainly. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. It was very nice to be here. 